the way our text ended as Michael preached last week. And as Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the centurion who was uh, the, the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last and said, This man truly was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph and Salome. And, he was with, and when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And they were also, there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when an evening had come, since it was the first day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who himself also was looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. At this point in our text, Jesus is dead. He's not just kind of dead or or swoon, as some theories would claim, people that do not believe the text of Scripture, but he is totally and completely dead. No brain function, no heartbeat, no air in his fully human lungs. He is completely and utterly dead. John 19 tells us that one of the soldiers actually took a spear and pierced his side. It flowed with blood and water, and uh, this was a first century way of confirming that he was actually dead, that someone had actually passed away. So in this day, a criminal that died by crucifixion would have been left on the cross as a reminder and a deterrent for future criminals. It's a big picture. It's a billboard. Don't do crime. <laughs> this is your end if you continue in the lifestyle that you're living. Bodies would, would remain on the cross and they would rot and decay, be eaten by dogs or birds of prey. But this would not be the case for Jesus for at least a couple reasons. Number one... Jewish law, different from Roman law, said that executed criminals, even the worst, even those that had been crucified or tortured and killed, still must receive a proper burial before sunset. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 21. The second reason is we meet this character, this individual, Joseph of Arimathea, who went to Pilate, says boldly, or in some of your your translations may say with courage, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now, this is interesting, this guy Joseph and um, it's, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it tells us in the text that we just read that he's a member of the council. Your translation may say the Sanhedrin. He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, uh, the text says. If you've been paying attention in Mark's gospel, you may think, well, wait, isn't, isn't that the same group that, that just gave Jesus this phony trial and wanted him dead? Yeah, good observation. You're paying attention. Yet, we also read in the text that he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 23 shows us that this Joseph guy, he didn't support the decision of the Sanhedrin to uh, seek Jesus' execution. John chapter 19 even hints at the fact that he may have thought that Jesus was actually the Messiah in the same way that his disciples thought that. I think it shows us, church, that even in the midst of the worst crowds, the worst groups, the worst organizations, the worst political parties, there can still be God-honoring people, people that the Lord would use in incredible ways. Lest we cast judgment on the whole group. But even if he did, even if this guy Joseph did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, like Jesus' disciples, at this point his hopes are dashed. A thousand pieces laying before him. Any, any hope that he had that Jesus was the Messiah because Jesus is dead. And Joseph's love here moved him to go and publicly, even at the, at the, at the, at the possibility of ridicule and mockery, moved him to go and publicly ask for Jesus' body. 
his love here led him to sacrifice a tomb, that, a property that he owned to give Jesus a tomb? If you continue reading, verse 44, it says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So Joseph comes boldly, asks for the body of Jesus. In verse 44, it says, Pilate was surprised that Jesus had already died. And the way crucifixion worked, it it usually took several days of suffering, uh, of agony and pain until the individual would ultimately die by suffocation. Charles Spurgeon says that Pilate was surprised that Jesus was dead, but he was also surprised for another reason too. Quoting Spurgeon here, Spurgeon says, I have no doubt that Pilate was surprised that a member of the Sanhedrin should come and ask for the body of Jesus when a little while before he had put Jesus to death by the mandate of that very same body. Joseph comes and asks for the body. Pilate confirms. He sends a soldier to check that Jesus is actually dead. It's a task that these centurions, they're professional soldiers, they're professional killers. They would have been able to do this job with excellence, and they indeed did confirm that Jesus was dead. And so Pilate gives the corpse, the text says, the corpse of Jesus to Joseph. Why would we start here this morning? We've already kind of had a long weekend of just rain and it's dreary outside. And then we come in and we sing one song and, and Matt starts talking about Jesus is dead. I want us to feel the weight this morning. At the beginning of our worship service, I want us to feel the weight of Jesus' death and burial. I want us to feel the weight of Friday. That Jesus is in the tomb. There is no life in his body. All hope is gone. And, and, and to disconnect us from the end of this story, to realize that in this moment, they, they were hopeless. There was nothing left. I mean, I mean even just, just the way the text is presented to us. Joseph is there of Arimathea. Nicodemus, we read in John chapter 19, is there. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. They're the only ones that are there that, that are part of this burial that Mark gives us. Why is that important? Well, see the irony here, first of all, that Joseph and Nicodemus are the two men that are there. What do they have in common? They're both Pharisees. All the disciples have deserted. All of his followers, the ones that will go on to be apostles, all of them have left Jesus. And the only people that remain are two ladies that were close friends and two Pharisees who hated Jesus. This this group that we've seen from the beginning of Mark's gospel that despised Jesus. They're the only ones left. I mean, it's a dire, a sad picture. All hope is lost here, church. The the one that they had hoped was the Messiah, he's dead and buried. And if this is where Mark had ended, if this was the end of Mark's account, there would be no New Testament, there would be no epistles, there would be no church, there would be no Christianity. And we would be a bunch of, of cuckoos for meeting here this morning today and doing anything under the name of Christ. This is not where Mark ends. This is not the end of Mark's gospel. Jesus is dead. They believe it's all over. But friends, Sunday is coming. Sunday's coming. If you have your Bibles, we'll open to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Be in the first eight verses, Mark chapter 16. Hear the word of the Lord. 
And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for, uh, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. That without it, we would have no understanding or knowledge of the truth. But because you have given us your word and your spirit, this morning we can gather as your bride, as the body of Christ, because death has been conquered, Jesus has defeated the grave. We praise you this morning that you would not leave us in our sin, but that you pursued us, and that Jesus, you went to a criminal's death, the death on a cross that each and every one of us deserved to purchase for yourself a people that would be your possession. Thank you, Jesus. Spirit, we ask that you would take this text, that you would work it into our hearts and lives, that this morning uh, an age-old truth that we've heard numerous times would be new life for us, that you would give us new eyes to see how that truth impacts everything in our lives. Help us to live in light of the resurrection. Help us to live as resurrection people who will one day experience resurrection because you've conquered the grave. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the years surrounding the life of Jesus, his life and death, uh, numerous Messiah figures arose. Uh, many of them inspired movements. Uh, Jesus was not the first Messiah figure and would not be the last. There were, there were those that came before and after him uh, in Israel. But without exception, these Messiah figures and these Messianic movements failed. They all fizzled out. <laughs> Most of the time, the Messianic figure, whoever was the leader of that movement, whether politically or militarily, he would be killed, oftentimes by execution. And as this person died, as this leader died, the movement collapsed. Everyone uh, took their propaganda down, they took their campaign shirts off, they went home because that was it. The leader died, the revolution failed. And of all these dozens of, of messianic movements, only one did not collapse after the death of its leader. And in fact, the opposite was true. Instead of collapsing, this one movement exploded after the death of its leader. And in the span of 300 years, this movement had exploded and spread uh, so far that it encapsulated the whole Roman Empire. And, of course, I'm talking about Christianity. So the question, why did this Messianic movement differ? How did it not fail like all the others? Why didn't it fizzle out like all of the others? What made Christianity different? Why did Christianity spread like wildfire instead of fizzling out when its leader died? Why are we 2,000 years removed from the death of its leader, and yet today there are millions of people all across the planet that are worshiping this Messiah? 
The answer may be obvious to us that are in this room. The answer lies in what happened after the death of this leader. So what exactly was that? What exactly happened after Jesus' death that so profoundly impacted the movement that it's still here today and there is power and life and growth even now in this movement all over the world? Let's read together again. I just walked us through the first eight verses. Let's unpack and see what it was that occurred and what took place. It says this, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now there's, there's a peculiar redundancy in Mark's writing here that we need to be sure and notice. You may have caught it because we read last, the, the end of last week's text and the beginning of our, the text that we read today. And so you may have caught it just in the fact that we've read the, the whole thing now uh, together. But the thing that's, that's being repeated, what Mark is being redundant in, is that in three times, three different occasions in the span of eight lines of text, at least the way my Bible's written, Mark has listed the name of these women that witnessed these events. If you catch that, go back and, go back and look at the, the, the last few verses. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome are mentioned three times. Richard Bauckham, New Testament scholar, uh, he says this. This is Mark's way of showing us that he's recording actual history and not some myth or legend. Repeating these names here are a way that he's giving us his source citations. He's giving us his footnotes, right? As if you were writing a paper or a book. He's giving us the quotes, and these women must have still been alive when Mark was writing his gospel account by, because by including their names, he's saying to everyone that's reading the gospel, if you don't believe me, if you want to verify my story, go and talk to these three specific women. They're still alive and they can corroborate everything that I've said. They can verify the truth of what I've said. They were there. They saw it. Go ask them. And this gives us incredible confidence in our faith today, right? I mean, we can't go as they could have, to these women today. They're not alive still. But the Jews and the Romans at that time had every reason and motivation to go and seek them out, right? Because if the story's fake, if, if the story's made up, if, the, if the, the facts don't check out, then they could have squashed this new religion in one fell swoop. And the, the Romans and the Jews had every reason, politically and religiously, to do that. But they couldn't, and they didn't. So what was it that these women saw? What was it that they bore witness to that these, that these Jews and Romans couldn't go and, and find falsehood in? Well, Mark continues. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where, he lay, where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. He's risen. He's risen. He's not here. He's not in the grave. You, you come to find, I know who you came here to find, but I'm telling you, he's not here. He's risen. Don't let your familiarity with this story, with the gospel, skew for you just how ridiculous this statement is. I mean, I mean put it into our context. Don't think about it in, in, in New Testament sense. Think about it in our context. You go to a funeral service, 
right? You just, you just went to a funeral and you saw the deceased person in the casket in the front of the church. And, and, and they're dead. Their body is cold. There is no life in that casket. You verified it. You saw it. You walked to the front of the, 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 the sanctuary and you walked past and you saw the person deceased there in the casket. And then you drive to the cemetery for the burial service. And when you arrive, the preacher greets you and he says, he's not here. The guy that you just saw, he's not here. He's risen. In fact, he got up and walked out. He went over to the subway over there to get him a sandwich. That doesn't make sense. We don't have a category for how that makes any sense for us. And it wouldn't have for them either. This wasn't something they were expecting. These ladies came fully thinking that they were going to perform customary Jewish burial practices. Since they were not able to do that earlier because of Sabbath laws. Yet we know they should not have been surprised. Jesus has already told them, he's predicted that this would be the case three different times, at least three different times. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, Jesus says this exact thing would happen, and each time he gets more and more specific, and he actually tells them where it's going to happen, and in three days he's going to rise. We know that Mark's gospel is the shortest of the gospels. And so if Mark records this for us three times, as short as he keeps his gospel, the fact of the matter is, the things that Mark didn't include, Jesus was probably saying this all the time. This was probably a normal teaching from Jesus, and they had heard it, and they had heard it, and they had heard it. Except for the fact that they come here to bury, to do a burial practice. They came with burial plans. Shows that they, they, nor any of the other followers of Jesus, who were not even showing up, had any idea or remembered any of Jesus' words concerning his death and resurrection. Then the angel says this. Go, (laughs) go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Now the angel would have been completely justified in delivering another message. And perhaps if, if, if I or if you were Jesus, that message would have been different, right? I'm just telling you how, how sinful my own heart is. If, if I would have been Jesus, that message would have been something like, you go tell those faithless backstabbing cowards that I might, I might meet with them if and only if they'll come beg and plead for my forgiveness, if they'll grovel and they better grovel well, maybe, just maybe, I'll show myself to them because they all deserted. They all left. They didn't want nothing to do with me when the rubber hit the road and when times got tough. That's not the message he sent. It's not what he said. Instead, through this messenger, through this angel, Jesus tells them, I'll see you. I will see you again just like I told you. I'm going ahead of you indeed. I'm going to to go ahead of you to Galilee and I'll meet you back where it all started. Back where I met you for the first time. Back where I called you to be my disciples. Back where I taught you. Back where I showed you what it looked like to love and have mercy and compassion. Back where you saw me do all those miracles. I'll meet you back there. Why? Because I want you back. Though you deserted, it, I want you back. Do you hear the grace and mercy in our Savior's message? I'm going to meet you there. And there's more grace and mercy here to observe. Because he says this. Tell the disciples. Tell my disciples and Peter. And I'm reading this this week and I'm going, why is this angel so specific? Why is Jesus' message so specific that he would say, and Peter, right? Peter's one of the disciples. So in saying, go tell my disciples, Peter's among that group. He's a part of that group. He would have been included in the disciples. So why then single him out? Why say, tell the disciples and Peter? Why get specific like that? Do you remember who it was that denied Jesus three times before the rooster finished crowing? 
Do you remember how in John's gospel, John gives us a little bit more detail and he tells us that as soon as Jesus had been brutally beaten in the face and, 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 and beaten over the head, he's bleeding, they've just given this phony trial, that he's leaving the courtyard and in that moment, he and Peter lock eyes. In that moment, Peter feels the weight of all of the denial, of all of the lying, of all of his cowardliness. And Jesus knew the regret, the pain, the embarrassment, the humiliation that Peter would be obviously feeling at this moment. As Peter observed his own betrayal of Jesus, as Peter saw the resulting brutality that took place and the way that Jesus was, was murdered, he knew how Peter would be feeling. And so even there, by Jesus singling out Peter, he says, go tell my disciples and Peter. Make sure Peter hears this. I need Peter to hear this. Go tell Peter. He's showing his heart. He's showing his mercy. He's showing that his grace is lavished specifically on Peter here. Not in some generic sense, but in a very intentional, in a very focused, in a very acute sense. I want Peter to know that I have mercy and forgiveness even for him. And here's the, here's the reality. I can tell you this morning that you can insert your name right there where Peter's is. Because the reality is for all of us, we've all denied Christ. We've all denied Jesus. We've all been the ones that have turned our back on him by sinful choices. And Christ has called you to himself. If you're a believer this morning, you've been born again. And that kind of specificity has been applied to you. By the Spirit of God, he's called you by name to himself. Not in some generic sense. He said, Matt James, I want him to know there's forgiveness even for him. In a very intentional, in a very focused, purposeful kind of grace. You're not a number before the Lord. He loves you. And so the angel tells them where they can go and find Jesus. Their mission's changed, right? I love this. There's no need to anoint a body who's not there. There's no need to anoint a corpse that's no longer there. And so Jesus, he sees that that was their mission. The angel sees this is why they came. They came with these spices. They, were, they had a mission. And he gives them a new mission. You're not going to be undertakers today. You're not going to work for the funeral home today. Instead, I'm going to give you a new mission to go and proclaim the gospel. They're the first missionaries. They get sent out. He says, go. And then he tells them, announce the good news that I've risen. I've conquered death. And what a joy, right? I mean, I mean, think about it. When you get to announce something, right? You're the one that's given the, the, the privilege of getting to announce some great news. What, what a joy that is. It's the greatest news in all the world. And they're the ones that get to go back and tell the disciples, he's risen. That responsibility and privilege is no less for us today. We get that privilege. We get to go and announce to the world our king has defeated death. Luke's gospel gives us a bit more insight into that meeting. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet. It is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. See what it was like to see the resurrected Jesus. These ladies take this news to the disciples. And as they're talking about this, Jesus shows up. Just like he says he's going to. He's not some sort of ghost. He has flesh and bones. 
He ate physical food. If you continue reading in Luke 24, it says they gave him some broiled fish. Praise the Lord. Must have been Baptists because they show up and they eat together. They spoke with him. They touched him. He knows their hearts. I mean, there's so much to unpack even in this little section of Scripture. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? He knows what they're thinking. He knows their hearts. And he tells them, I'm not some, some spirit. I've got flesh and bones. You can touch me. Skeptics would say, well, couldn't this be a, a, a real big like group hallucination? No. They're not the only ones that saw Jesus. If you continue, Paul gives a long list of people that saw him, most of whom were still living, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, at the time that Paul is writing. Paul gives five instances where groups of people saw Jesus resurrected. 500 in one event. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us seven, seven different instances where people saw Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, uh, show us that Jesus appeared for 40 days to different groups of people from uh, different cultures and backgrounds, but different size groups of people. And so it's, hard, it's, it's, it's impossible to make the case that all of these people were having the exact same hallucination. It's not the way that works, at least I've been told. Additionally, there has to be some explanation for how these cowardly disciples that betrayed Jesus at his, in, in the garden, way before this thing even got started, they're falling asleep. His trial, they're, they're nowhere to be found. His crucifixion, they've deserted. And now suddenly there's this shift, and now they're the fearless leaders of the Christian church that go on to ultimately give their lives as martyrs because they're proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah and he's risen from the dead, and they won't shut their mouths about it. How do you explain that? Well, friends, none of this makes sense unless his resurrection really happened and he actually appeared to these individuals. He showed up like he said he would. They met with him. They ate with him. They talked with him. They touched him. And so here's our hope. Here's our hope this morning that Jesus has risen just like he said he was going to. Friends, we should never be, we should never, uh, it should never fail to amaze us that he accomplished what he did. And that when Jesus said he, he was going to rise from the dead, that he actually stood up and marched out of that tomb. That should never fail to amaze us. That he's conquered death on our behalf. And, and the spiritual implications of that. We think about it even, even from a physical standpoint in our world and an example that we can understand. A criminal, right, who does time in jail, judge giving him a sentence, he does time in jail. When he satisfies that judge's sentence, the law has no more claim on him. There is no more condemnation. He does his sentence. He fulfills his sentence. The judge hands him down. And he simply gets up and walks out of the prison with whatever he walked in there with, a free man. He's done. He's out. And though killed like a criminal, Jesus came to pay our penalty. And the sentence for our crimes was a, a death sentence. Our sins, our rebellion against the holy God was a death sentence and an infinite sentence for those of us that, that would come after him, Jesus fully satisfied it. He fully satisfies it. And we know this because on Easter Sunday, he stood up and marched right out. He marched out free because the law had no more claim on him. There was no more condemnation. He had perfectly fulfilled the demands that sin had brought. And here's the beauty in all of it for us. That the law, that sin, that death... The grave has no more claim on you and me either if we're in Christ. We don't have to fear death. There is no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Friends, we have hope of eternal life because the, the, the resurrection happened in Mark's account is actually what happened and Jesus marched out of that tomb. The resurrection is of supreme importance. It is the hinge upon which the entire world pivots. Everything before it and everything that comes after it looks back to that moment. So you believe in the resurrection. You've trusted in Christ's finished work on the cross. You've repented of your sins. You've placed uh, your life on the altar of God as a living sacrifice to the king who's conquered death. He is now your Lord. He is now your master. You are following him. You've repented. You've had faith in him. What now? What now? Back at Easter, we saw the resurrection. We walked through uh, the resurrection and and different proofs and evidences for the validity of the resurrection, how we can know that it actually happened. We're not going to do that again this morning. Now we've walked through Mark's gospel, and we're at the resurrection for the second time. So twice in a matter of five months or so, We stand at the resurrection. So the question, does the resurrection have any meaning for our life in the here and now? How does the resurrection impact our lives between now, when we've come to know Christ, when we've repented and had faith in Jesus Christ, and that moment when he takes us to be with him? How does the resurrection influence, impact our lives on planet earth? In the time we have left, I want to give us three implications of this truth for our lives. Three implications of the resurrection that should steer, that should guide, that should motivate, that should determine everything we do. So, number one, the resurrection produces joy in suffering. The resurrection produces joy in suffering. To the extent that the resurrection captivates us, to the the, the extent that the resurrection is what we're fixed on, it is what our hope is in and it is what daily consumes us, that Jesus conquered death, to that point... It will change everything in our lives in the present. For example, let me, let me show you how this plays out. So why is it hard to face suffering? Why is it hard to face disability or disease? Why is it hard to do the right thing when we know it's going to cost us money or reputation or maybe even our lives? Why is it so hard to face death itself or the death of a loved one? It's, it's hard because we think, and yes, even in the church, sadly, even among believers, somehow Satan has influenced us to think that this world is the only one we have, right? YOLO. It's secretly crept into the fabric of the church's theology. We need to get rid of it. And some of you are like, what is a YOLO? You only live once. It's this idea that, that this world is all I have and, and this life is all I have. I'll get one shot at it. I'll get one trip around this, this thing called life and I'm going to do everything I can do and that I want to do because this is it. And it's a temptation that all of us have that, that, that this money that I'm making is all, the only wealth I'll ever have or that this body that I've been given is the only one that I'll ever have. And these are lies. And, and what it ultimately does is it undercuts the meaning and power of the resurrection if you believe that this world is all that we have. Jesus has risen, and if Jesus has risen, then our future is much more beautiful and secure than that. Tim Keller recounts the story of Joni Erickson Tata, and I know many of you know her story. I've perhaps even read um, about her yourself. 
But he tells her story. At 17 years old, she's in an accident that leaves her paralyzed from the neck down. And she tells of her her early life and and adjusting and dealing with this accident and how she would go to church every Sunday in a a wheelchair. And, and And it made a problem. There was a problem that stirred up in her heart and in her life that every Sunday as part of the liturgy, the priest called upon everyone to kneel. And when he would do that, this drove home the fact that she was paralyzed, that she was incapable of kneeling. She couldn't do it. And so this, this one event, she was at a convention, and the speaker urged everyone to get down on their knees. And, and so everyone did, thousands of people, except for Joni. And she, accounts, she, she recounts how that event impacted her. She says this, with everyone kneeling, I stood out. And I couldn't stop the tears. And it was not because of self-pity. I was crying because the sight of thousands of people on their knees before God was so beautiful. It was a picture of heaven. And sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I'll be free to jump up and to dance and to kick and to do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop down with grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus, I with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness. It will be powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? Friends, an implication of the resurrection is that this world is not the end, and that whatever suffering may come, right? Natural disasters, disease, cancer, sickness, paralyzation. Whatever may come in this life, this life is not the end. And when you get it, when you get the resurrection, then when it is the defining truth in your life, when it is the thought that consumes you, then you can have great joy even in the midst of suffering that this life is sure to bring. Because there's hope of another life. So, joy in suffering. Number two, the resurrection cultivates courage to spend our lives for Jesus. The resurrection cultivates courage to spend our lives for Jesus. When you live with the perspective that this world, this body, this life is not the end, that the resurrection has secured your one-day resurrection, then who cares what people think of you? (laughs) I mean, who, who cares what people do to you or what they say about you? You can be brave. You can take risks. You can be full of godly courage. Right? I mean, even think Joseph Arimathea going before all of his peers, all of the political leaders, Pilate. Think about what this looked like for the disciples of Jesus. Right? When he met with them in Galilee, what we just read about. He shows up. He shows them his hands and his feet. He shows them his his scars. He's, He's letting them see and touch his scars. And the last time that Jesus saw uh, that they saw Jesus, last time those disciples saw those scars, they thought they were those scars were ruining their lives. You see, they thought they were on a presidential campaign, and that that their candidate was a shoe in, that they were going to win, that this Messiah had come, he was going to win, and they were going to be his cabinet, they were going to be his right hand men. And then they saw those nails go through his hands and his feet. They saw that spear go through his side. And they believed that those wounds had just destroyed their lives, their hopes, everything they had been striving for since they had met Jesus. And now Jesus is showing them his resurrected body and those scars are still there. Those nail-pierced hands, those nail-pierced feet are still there, but it's different now. You see, those scars that they thought ruined their lives actually saved their lives. 
The nails that they once thought obliterated their dreams gave them a new dream and courage to pursue it. Courage to pursue it even to their own deaths. Now, seeing those scars, they had a vivid picture of what Christ did for them. Remembering those scars, producing them the courage that they needed to take the gospel to us, to every person in the world. It's the reason that this movement spread like wildfire. Because the resurrection had produced courage to leverage their lives for Christ at any cost. And it will produce that kind of courage in us too when it becomes the defining driving force of our lives. We need that this morning church. We need that kind of godly courage that only the resurrection and hope of another life will bring. So it produces joy and suffering. It produces courage to live to leverage our lives for Christ. And the third one, the resurrection provides meaning for everything. The resurrection provides meaning for everything. And those first two examples, joy and suffering and courage, they're needed because of negative things that show up in our lives, right? Whether it's suffering, because of the sinful fallen world, we need joy and suffering. Whether it's courage because of persecution or courage to be bold for Christ, in the midst of an antagonistic culture. Both of those things are negative, and, and, and the resurrection produces for us the things that will help us to leverage our lives in those moments, even in terrible times. But I want us to see that, that the resurrection also provides meaning for everything, even the good things, even the blessings that God has given us, even the grace that God's lavished upon our lives. The resurrection provides meaning even for those things. And so I'll give you a couple examples. When we're consumed with the resurrection, when that's the thought that captivates us, then our spouse, our marriage, is a gift that God has given us for his glory, right? So think about how this plays out. The joy you feel from your spouse in good times, right? Things are going great. The marriage is doing well. Things are going great. The fullness that you feel in that moment that is experienced there is just a shadow. It's just a a shadow. It's just a a foretaste of the true joy that that you'll have when you stand before the king. And you see what marriage was really meant to be, right? Ephesians 5, that's what marriage is supposed to be, is a picture of the way that Christ loved the church. And so when we go before our king and we see what marriage really is, then our marriages here and now are just a picture. It's just a shadow of that. That's how the resurrection redefines even our marriage. It's on the opposite. When we, when we, there's anger that we're experiencing in our marriage. When we're fighting with our spouse and we're, we're just wanting to throw in the towel and be done, it ends in the same fullness of joy if we are in Christ. That we'll stand before the Lord one day because of the resurrection. We too will experience resurrection. And when we stand before him, all of these things that we've experienced on this earth are but a momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory in that moment that are in store for us because of the resurrection. Another example, when you're fixed on the resurrection, when it's the defining truth in your life, that job that you have, whether you love it or you hate it, Whether you're excited about going back to work tomorrow or whether you're dreading it, it's not the ultimate end. It's not true satisfaction. Whether you have a good day or a bad day tomorrow at your job, the resurrection gives it purpose that you do your job because it's worship under the one that has secured your future. And the reality is you can apply this same idea to everything under the sun, whether it's school or entertainment or traveling or building a home or teaching Sunday school. That the resurrection defines all of those moments because ultimately those moments are just a glimpse. They're just a glimpse. They're just a fallen version of what is perfect for us and awaiting for us in glory. The resurrection provides meaning to all of life for followers of Christ. And so we'll end in this way. Because our king has conquered death, because our king has 
risen from the dead. Mark's gospel has shown us, and this is not where we're ending. There's Come back next week in, in Mark. Because Jesus has conquered death, so can we. Spiritually, he's secured our resurrection, but even here, even in the, the here and now, in this in-between time, between his resurrection and his second coming, because he's beaten death, we get to live victorious. It's the defining moment. It's the soldier that's been told, hey, you've already won the battle. I pray we would live in light of that truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the grave, the tomb is empty this morning. And that every day is Easter for those of us that are in Christ. I pray that, Spirit, you would help us to understand and apply and to hear this truth every day when our feet hit the floor and we step out of our beds. That this world is not what we're living for. That we are just pilgrims passing through. And because of your resurrection, Jesus, we too will be resurrected. So whatever comes our way tomorrow, for our brothers and sisters down, on the, uh, down south of us that are experiencing flooding, and God, we pray you would be with them, but God, we ultimately pray that you would give them hope. This world's not the end. That the things that we go through in this life are but a momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us who are in Christ. We worship you, Jesus. Meet with us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we respond in song, you do business with the Lord. Worship him because he's worthy. He's the victor. He's the one that's conquered death. If you need to know the Lord, if you've never trusted him as Lord and Savior, I pray that today you would do that. You can just go before the Lord right now and ask him to forgive your sins, confess your unworthiness trust his finished work on the cross that he is who he said he is and that he's conquered death he'll save you